This is the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, featuring talks and conversations recorded live by the Public Programs Department of California Institute of Integral Studies, a nonprofit university located in San Francisco on unceded Ramaytush Ohlone land. The contemporary definition of a good or healthy body has been centuries in the making. But as eating disorder specialist and storyteller Jessica Wilson writes, the pure, moral, rule-abiding body has never, ever been a black woman's. Every day, Jessica sees how the pressure to conform to white supremacist ideals of health and beauty constrict and harm women of color. As a registered dietitian specializing in eating disorders, as a social justice activist, and as a woman with multiple marginalized identities, Jessica's goal is to end this harm. In this episode, CIIS Dean of Faculty Development, Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion at CIIS, Danielle Drake, has a conversation with Jessica that challenges us to rethink the politics of body liberation by centering the bodies of Black women in our cultural discussions of self-image, food, health, and wellness. This episode was recorded during an in-person and live-streamed event at California Institute of Integral Studies on March 8th, 2023. You can also watch it on the CIIS Public Programs YouTube channel. A transcript is available at CIISpod.com. To find out more about CIIS and public programs like this one, visit our website, CIIS.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. Um, a pleasure to be here. I was just talking earlier that this is one of the first few in-person conversations we've had um, in this iteration of the pandemic. I'm saying we're trans pandemic. <laughs> so it's, I'm really, really happy to have you here and to have this conversation today. I'm so glad to talk to you. Do you mind if we start with our pronouns? Sure. So I'm Jessica Wilson, I use she, her pronouns, and. (laughs) I'm Danielle Drake and I use she, her, joyful. And I love that (laughs) so much. Thank you. Yes. Um, It's a reminder. It's a reminder for me. It's a reminder for others, I think, that, Joy is a choice in a lot of ways. We can talk more about that. I have some thoughts mm-hmm. that you actually articulate pretty mm-hmm. well in your book. Thanks. <laughs> so um, let's jump in. Yeah, let's. Um, so the first question that I have is really just about like what was the impetus for writing this book and I'm interested in the title, too. It's always been ours. There's two answers to the impetus for writing the book. Okay. Two of them are actually in this audience. I said no to writing this book from Renee, who is right here, uh, multiple (laughs) times. Do you want to write a book? No. How about now? No. Uh, So, And then I talked to my friend Shana, who actually is across from Renee, uh, and said... 
if I can reach a group of people rather than just my one-on-one appointments with folks, then it would be worth it to write a book. So here we are. Good answer, Shayna. The title, I honestly can't remember where it came from. I want to say it was one of the initial pitches for the book. And since it's come out and after reading it throughout um, and talking with friends, I've just realized how much has always been ours. It's not just like it as a body narrative. Mm -hmm. It's joy. It's so many things that have really always been ours that we've either known or have perhaps been taken from us Mm -hmm. that we need to reclaim. Yeah, yeah. I can um, absolutely understand that. And especially as, I mean, this book is centered for Black women, Black films, and um, so much of, you know, our legacy is about um, being taken, taken from, all of that. And so um, to talk about it, even from a joyful resistance place, I think is a is a big piece, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's what you what you said you wanted to focus on too. <laughs> joy tonight. You, you Absolutely. Said, um, joy at CIIS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really feel that in 2023, that joy has been missing and we need a lot more of it. Mm-hmm. I'm tired of things always being hard. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want to laugh. Mm-hmm. I want to be in community and yes, express and experience joy. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I, this question that I'm um, going to ask you is kind of off script because I didn't even think about it until I was in the back there oh, and okay. I was listening to your um, bio and you, they, um, you are, they said, an eating disorder specialist. And mm-hmm. I'm always interested in the word disorder. Yeah. Because um, as, a, as a clinician, mm-hmm. we're supposed to diagnose, we're supposed to do all of these things. And it leads us in, down a path of pathology. And so I just, you know, want you to speak maybe a little bit about, you know, eating as a disorder. And, um, you know, how we can bring some joy there. <laughs> <laughs> so many ways to answer that question. Just like flow with it. <laughs> I'll start at the beginning or where you started, okay. which is the pathologizing and I think also problematizing of yes. our eating disorder mm-hmm. uh, in quotation marks. And often and so often black women, black folks just will never fit within the confines of a diagnosis because the medical industrial complex is just not created to include us in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, So I write that, you know, for anorexia or bulimia um, diagnoses that black folks just often don't fit into those categories based on our presentation Mm -hmm. and we're not seen or assumed to have Mm -hmm. an eating quote disorder. So Mm -hmm. what are we doing when we're talking about and using the word disorder? Yeah. Yeah. So how can we talk about food in a way that actually applies and makes sense? And how can we talk about the ways that we restrict or eat in ways that offer joy, but also survival, sometimes respectability? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 I really appreciate that. And it makes me think about, um, you know, the, the 
sort of pathology that is inside of, or, or what is the supposed pathology inside of a disorder. And it's really mm -hmm. just communication, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> People are communicating about something and it's usually something that is not right. Yeah. You know, I and, do. and they don't have necessarily the microphone mm -hmm. <laughs> to be able to um, talk about it. Yeah. Know? a good point i like yeah. it yeah um so <laughs> one of the things that i noticed in the book is that you took sort of a qualitative narrative approach to um the structure of the book you know this storytelling approach and i just wanted you to talk for a little bit about why that was important specifically for engaging a discussion about um you know, black women and them bodies. Yeah. So there's 10 parts to that. I'll focus on two. Um, <laughs> I've been told that I exist in conversation. I exist in community. And also it's a more fun and digestible read when it is more of a conversation and not just a string of facts. So for to demonstrate what it is like to be in community, I think I've infused a lot in here and again, within the confines of white supremacy and medicine, black women, black folks are actually never included or centered in that. So using a quantitative lens is literally impossible because we're not in the research. We have been historically the research. Mm -hmm. So yeah, qualitative yeah, and con conversational. Yeah. And yeah. you know, it was interesting because when I was thinking about it, I was like, of course it would it can only be that. It can only be that because, um, you know, just coming from like a womanist perspective, it's about self-definition. And the only way you get to self-define mm. is to tell the story. Yeah. You know, and it's and it's usually so much more nuanced and complex than um, what the health industrial or medical industrial complex wants to be able to see, mm -hmm. um, especially for, you know, folks that, ha you know, sit outside of the normal um, population yeah. that they use to create all of the guidelines and standards, mm -hmm. i.e. BMI, the, all of, all oh, everything. of the things, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you also took some time to detail some specific definitions about health and wellness and all of that. Um, and, you know, you, you make distinctions between like big H health mm -hmm. and little H health, yeah. big W wellness, mm -hmm. little W wellness. Can you take me through, um, you know, not just what it, like what, what the definitions are, but like maybe a couple of, of examples about mm -hmm. like why that's important. Yeah. Uh, big or capital H health to me is the social construction of health, the series of agreements that we all have about what health is, what health looks like. We like to think that it's objective, that, you know, it's about numbers and values and labs and things, but it's not. Um, it is about what you know, we have been told, which is oftentimes everything that blackness and black women are not, 
is what is capital H health. And it's also, you know, looks a certain way. So even if things look great on paper, but if you don't look healthy for one reason or another, um, you still won't have it. And then so in that case, like lowercase health might be the way that I'm feeling, Mm -hmm. um, might be the way that I'm interacting with folks, but it's, you know, an individual again. Wellness, I love capital W wellness. It's like the wellness industrial complex again. It is goop. It is dust. It's adaptogens. It's vagina candles. (laughs) Wait a minute. That chapter? Yeah. I was like... (laughs) Absolutely not. Absolutely. (laughs) And do you know that this, I didn't read it until after our conversation, Mm -hmm. our our initial conversation. I was like, well, she told me to read this chapter, so I'm going to read it. And like literally like two lines in, I felt like my body tightened. And I was like, this is, you know, it's that moment when you are a person of color going into a white space Mm -hmm. and you're like, this ain't going to be right. (laughs) And... It was literally that. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I'm reading through the chapter. And in a way, like I get it. I get what you were trying to do. It was like this experiment, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Um, so talk talk to the audience about the, the experiment of Google. <laughs> so <laughs> I was months into writing and really hadn't experienced wellness and all it had to offer. To me, it had been, you know, through clients that had told me they had gone down their wellness journey or they had started taking some dusts or whatever it was. Um, And I was wondering how I could get a good experience with wellness in a short period of time. So I went right to Gwyneth Paltrow and said, what what can she offer me? I wasn't going to do a cleanse or anything like that because that's silly. But instead, she was having a uh, one day event, her in Goop Health Summit. Um, and that was at the Porsche driving experience, um, (laughs) sponsored by Porsche. A part, a part of it was to drive in a Porsche for a spiritual experience of yes, a mind body connection, Um, Uh, a spiritual, yeah, mind body experience. Right. Okay. Uh, uh, I always say, and one of my favorite parts that, you know, it was just this like weird two things happening at once and in you know meditation it was like you know your feet flat on the the ground and i was like this is a driveway this is just really yeah it was it was a lot the the the, the guided visualization yeah. took me out i was like no no oh absolutely we're gonna have a guided visualization about driving a porsche <laughs> oh yes uh, you know, have to care for people around you. It's not just an individual experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're looking out for others. Um, yeah, it was it was something. Um, the food offerings at breakfast, but uh, like you already mentioned, you know, if I had been wearing all black, somebody would have asked me where the bathroom was because it was me and maybe two other black women that I can recall. Um, the whole sea of like long past your shoulder, like blonde and brown hair from, I'd have a picture of the entire event and that is just all that it is in wellness Disneyland um, where we got to try. Yeah, it was great. Uh, but I say it was like this beautiful, easeful time. Like they let me in to like what it meant to be a rich white woman. Like I really got to experience this Disneyland, this paradise of just being carefree for a day. I was like, I get it. I see this. Mm-hmm. Um, I could honestly pay enough money and get into this, but no, I, I did not. Um, and then 
I, we left with like a thousand to two thousand dollars worth of swag. Um, yeah. Wow. Oh yeah, Gwyneth's own vibrator came in the in the wow. bag. Yeah. I just don't even know that I would want that. <laughs> <laughs> I love free things. I love free things, but um, yeah, it it was surprising and the audience was so clear mm -hmm. to the speakers and what they were saying it was like wow this is just not my reality mm -hmm. at all the things that you were talking about and that the ways that you're trying to be relatable have just mm -hmm. not to me and my yeah life and you know i hope i'm th that this is okay because it's in the book so yeah, you know, yeah, yeah we'll talk about it but the way that your body responded mm -hmm. to it I thought was the most telling thing mm -hmm. because it was like, this is not right. We need to shut down mm -hmm. and just like reject all of what's happening. Oh, the metaphor there. Look at that. Wow. <laughs> yes. Um, and also what I hadn't realized until really recently. So the story goes that Goop was just a day, but I was very dedicated to the whole wellness experience. So we went to LA for two two nights total uh Gwyneth has her own like guide to wellness in LA uh map so we you know got that we traveled through LA we got yeah we got the dust from moon juice um we went to like clean a clean cafe where there were ridiculous options including a bariatric smoothie um you know spelled like a berry of course um <laughs> And, you know, a bunch of things you could use to clean yourself out if you needed to do so. But I had forgotten, actually, that night, that first night, I did, I had one seizure then, and I totally, completely forgot about it. Mm -hmm. So the first night after having all the dusts, I had a seizure. Oh, sorry, I should start over. I have epilepsy. That seizure was not out of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> I've had seizures for 30 years, um, and they've been finely controlled. I have maybe like one one a month um on average and so i had one that night which is like oh i have one that's mm -hmm. fine next day was wellness disneyland uh where i also had many dust many mushrooms and got a b12 injection into my hip because i was all in um it was a very red vial <laughs> it was like oh maybe it's like a beetroot shot that you know like literally mm -hmm. shoot into your mouth mm -hmm. that's what i thought it was no you could pull down you know your pants and and I was all in so of course I was going to do that amongst um all of the other things that I did and yes so the next day I woke up with the worst seizure flare that I have had in all of the 30 years um I don't remember the next I remember the next morning because I was still committed and went to a soul cycle class the first one I've ever been to um and I was dedicated to that and then I don't remember anything after that Mm -hmm. yeah so yeah my body said no to wellness disneyland mm -hmm. entirely i hadn't put those together rejected it yeah your body was clearly speaking and i was and the whole time i was like for me it, it also was about the immersion of you mm -hmm. in not just wellness disneyland but like wellness as defined by whiteness yeah and that that's what it was mm -hmm. because it didn't allow for any other, you know, um, definitions or no. um, expressions, demonstrations of wellness that stood outside of whatever mm -hmm. 
you know, wellness okay. is, is sort of, you know, co-opted to be at this moment. Mm-hmm. So they had folks of color doing the workshops. Um, the initial black woman did the your feet on the Porsche uh, meditation. Right. So like you can see that there was like the sprinkling of color people needed to go for in 2022. They were like, we've been paying attention. Let's have a black person talk to us about a Porsche um, <laughs> meditation. Um, there was a very flamboyant man telling us about creativity um, and, you know, hearkening to Elon Musk and his creativity. <laughs> it's like, Okay. Um, and then other folks, there was somebody who talked about relationships. That was fine. Um, that, that was fine relationships, but yeah, it was not for me. Yeah. Turns out. <laughs> Turns out yeah. it wasn't for you. Absolutely. And so, um, what you've been doing though, um, in your own work is I think, um, really important because you've been, um, or in your career, really looking at um, the way that um, food and eating and all of that is sort of looked at by this this profession of being um, a dietitian, and then you know figuring out alternative ways to you know work with folks and all of that. And um, I had a question that I wanted to ask. Um, oh, I wanted to talk about some of the the narratives in, in the book. Mm-hmm. Um, specifically, I wanted to talk about um, a little bit about the narrative about the the, um, the the student who was an engineer. Mia. Mia. Yeah. And then also the gymnast. Lexi. Lexi. Yeah. So um, in both of those narratives, mm-hmm. um, and they're both Black women, um, both like immersed in um, a world that is not really built for them. Not at all. Yeah. Not at all built for them. Um, You know, we don't have to talk about gymnasts. We already know that that's a a whole world of peril. But the but the woman who um, was training to be an engineer Mm -hmm. um, and just can you just share a little bit about that story? and we can talk about, you know. Yeah. So I was at a predominantly white institution for actually many collegiate years um, as a dietitian on a college campus. So I ended up working with a lot of students, grad students, and one in particular was sent to me um, because her physician had seen her lab results and was like, I'm concerned there's something going on here. Um, go talk to the dietitian. And she was like, cool, because my hair's falling out. I need to know what supplements that I'm going to need to take in order to figure this out. Jessica, how can you help me? What supplements do I need to take? And I was like, oh, okay. That's the conversation that you're willing to have. Um, and that was not the primary concern. So Mia is... Uh, the client, and she was in an all-white graduate program and already, as a Black woman, was hyper-visible yet invisible to everyone around her. And so when she went on her own wellness journey and ended up losing weight, she became, you know, visible, more visible and people and more palatable and people started talking to her. So she wasn't hyper-visible. She was more easily seen um, and was getting 
the benefits of that, which was more social capital, more friends um, in her program at the expense of her physical and mental well-being. So her body was starting to eat itself and her hair, as you heard, was falling out. Um, Her mental um, health and her family relationships were slowly unraveling. Um, And so we had a real conversation about what, you know, eating more, and I won't say recovery, because again, the pathologizing, Mm -hmm. yeah, what a disorder is, but like, what would eating more look like? And, you know, it wasn't an option. Because, you know, being seen, getting a job, you know, having good references is important when, you know, you're a black professional. And, you know, she was open to reading Fearing the Black Body, a excellent 400-page book by Dr. Sabrina Strings, highly recommend. Um, She was open to reading it and totally understood me when we talked about white supremacy and the ways that black women's bodies are viewed and treated. And she said, yes, I understand. And I appreciate what you're telling me. You are right. And that's not something that I'm going to, I, I can't eat more food right now. And, you know, as a dietitian, you know, you're supposed to solve problems and convince people to recover from their mm-hmm. disorder. And that's not at all what was going on mm-hmm. right there. She was, you know, she didn't have an eating disorder. She had found a survival strategy. Yeah, it was it was literally the line that has stayed with me was I can't be black and mm-hmm. fat. And that just it just broke my heart mm-hmm. you know you know no space no none <clears throat> and then she was equating it to every like her weight was equated to every like measure of success yeah. she could have so it was like you know being able to have um be fit in mm-hmm. like for study groups yeah to have network afterwards mm-hmm. that if she were these two things, mm-hmm. black and fat, that she would not be able to have any of those. Mm-hmm. And um, it was just real, real, real hard, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, and, and that the messages of, um, you know, white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism had just like, gotten into her bones yeah and 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 she was like for my survival Mm -hmm. this is what I have to do yeah we had the conversations um I said oh do you know of any older folks in your profession who are fat black women be like yes absolutely and I was like how are their you know how's her career going and she's like it's fine now but they got into the profession and so her assumption was you know they had done the same things that she had done they had had you know shrunk their bodies at the time but like now they're established and they're able to be comfortable um being fat and black but you know it just wasn't an option she saw the dichotomies and the dissonance there but yeah and the reality is that people treat you differently yep people treat you differently when you um conform to you know Mm -hmm. whatever the standard is yeah um, I remember working at a at a at a substance abuse clinic, mm-hmm. 
And I had a particular client and she was just, you know, doing well. We were working her program the way she wanted to work it and it was working. And then, you know, had a relapse and um, she started losing all of this weight. Mm -hmm. And everybody was like, yeah. oh, you look great, you look great. And I was just like, oh, don't say that to her, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, because I knew that it was, it was based in all of the things, you know, that we've been talking about so far. And she was actually the least healthy that yeah. she had been since I started seeing her. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's, it is um, terrifying what people will do yeah. to their bodies in order to, you know, fit into, you know, these standards. Yeah. Yeah. I had a patient who lost weight because she had cancer and she got such positive feedback from people who didn't know she had cancer. Mm -hmm. She didn't have an eating disorder beforehand, but after her cancer recovery, she said, you know, I can't give this up. You know, I can't regain the weight that I lost through cancer. Mm -hmm. And so ended up working um, in our eating disorder program. And we had to talk about, you know, all of the myths of, you know, sugar and all, any carbohydrate and all of these things that people find on the Internet when they're searching for answers and mm -hmm. when society is just trash. It's mm -hmm. fine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think this is a good segue into um, a question that I wanted to ask um, about um just the ideas that you share in the book align with the size, diversity, and inclusion conversations that are just beginning to happen more publicly here at CIIS. Um, I, I, this is really important to me just because I've been around this, this, um, thank you, I've been around this um, environment, this, this institution, this community um, since 20, no, 2008, mm -hmm. um, first as a student, oh. all, all the things, <laughs> I've held all the positions. And um, I remember specifically having to work very hard internally mm. to make sure that I did not ever like allow this place full of like thin white yoga bodies. Yeah you know, yeah. to, to see myself represented. So I would walk down the halls and never encounter anybody who looked like me, size, shape, color, nothing. Mm -hmm. And so it was, um, it was a real journey for me. And so I think that, you know, there are people now here at this school who are really like, you know, I'm, I, I, I want this to be a part of our conversation. Mm -hmm. You know, it has to be a part of the conversation. Um, so just, you know, can you speak about your choice to join some of the size inclusive, um, diet? What is, what, what's the right term <laughs> that, that you were using that, that are, that's out there in the community? So like the health at every size community? That's health at every size. Okay. I love that. Okay. Okay. Yes. Um, let's talk about that, H how you made the choice to sort of, join those groups earlier in your career. So that's the first part. Okay. And then the second part is, um, you know, can you talk about ways that size inclusivity can be implemented 
in both individual conversations and in larger systems like CIIS. Okay, you'll have to remind me of that second I'll, one. Yeah, we'll go back. Okay. <laughs> I can go into yeah specifics about therapists, but yeah. you'll have to remind me again. Um, I got into those uh, community groups when I was still working um, at the University of Oregon because we were seeing uh, average-sized, overweight, and obese patients with anorexia. And we're like, oh, no, like this is not in the textbooks. What do we do? We know nothing as a treatment team. Um, I need to learn about the science that is out there but with the like weight science is what we'll call it. But the idea that weight is uh, linked to, um, let's see, how should I put it? Disconnecting health from weight. So the size of our bodies, our weight does not have a direct impact on our health or what health looks like for us. Um, And in those communities, um, it was a bunch of middle-aged baby boomer at the time, uh, fat white women. And they were having conversations that were incredibly second wave feminism. Um, so it was a how do we get ourselves to be treated like thin white women when we go to the doctor's office? And I said, hey, what about other things that are going on in doctor's offices other than, you know, weight stigma and fat phobia here? Because my friends who are fat that I'm talking to now, when they go to the doctor, even if they're treated like thin people, they're still black. They're still disabled. They're still trans. Um, So what conversations do we need to be having that are different than the ones that are being had here? So that was like my Mm -hmm. my like into health at every size. I helped them rewrite their principles in 2014. Mm -hmm. You're like, hey, you know, black person have a seat at our literal table or think tank. Um, we need you in diversity and social justice was the term at that time. It was before intersectionality. Mm-hmm. So it was like, we need these social justice words literally in our principles. And, you know, foolish me <laughs> thinking that the words in there would mean something, mm-hmm. but it was business as usual. Mm-hmm. So I mm-hmm. had to say, you know, goodbye then. Mm-hmm. Um, so now, yay for... Uh, different organizations that are outside. So the Association for Size, Diversity, and Health is one who owns the Health at Every Size principles. Mm-hmm. But then there are rad fat organizations mm. like No Loose. Mm-hmm. Yes, well, shout out and people have questions about yes, No Loose. I, I please shout out all the, the resources <laughs> and groups and all of that because this is really about, you know, I think um, just the act of joyfulness, right? Yeah. How do we joyfully love ourselves regardless, mm-hmm. you know? I do. So, yes, other organizations that are doing more body liberation, fat liberation work Mm -hmm. that are less tied to health. So that Mm -hmm. was something else that was going on within health at every size is just the direct tie to health and the healthism that is inherent when you're trying to, you know, prove that your body size is worthy because it's healthy, which was what was happening there. Mm -hmm. So how do we uncouple those things still Mm -hmm. and just be fine? Mm -hmm at whatever you know body size yeah yeah i remember um in the book you were talking about going to some uh talk or workshop or conference with with some doctor and they were like no that doesn't happen people who are anorexic do you know they're they're not large people they're thin they're They're very skin yeah they're very thin what the patients that you have like you don't have sick patients was the message like you don't actually have patients with eating disorders and then we were stuck. So, yeah, I had to look for other communities. And that is the um, sort of uh, gaslighting 
that happens um, for a lot of people who show up in health spaces, medical spaces, whatever. They can see you having a perfectly healthy experience and 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 name you unhealthy. Um, I recently, um, in 2021, delivered a two-year-old. Well, not I didn't deliver a two-year-old. <laughs> Come on now, no, but two now. But um, I delivered a baby in 2021, very unexpectedly. Um, uh, got pregnant during the pandemic, pandemic baby, because that's what everybody did. <laughs> but um, the thing is, I had a healthy pregnancy. And at one point, my uh, OB said, oh, well, you're having a really boring pregnancy. And I'm like, as opposed to what, you know? And they tried to make me unhealthy the entire pregnancy because of my age, my race, and my weight. So because of all of these like external factors, I was like, no one ever like gave me a survey or, you know, um, asked me what my stress levels were mm -hmm. like or anything. They just assumed that I was stressed out. I was on the verge of like, you know, preeclampsia and gestational diabetes, none of which would happen or was a problem, anything like that. And then two weeks before um, my delivery, they sort of doubled down and double teamed me while on a non-stress test, you know, uh, requesting that I do a an induction. So I had to fight, fight, fight for two weeks before the delivery. And then finally had a natural delivery, preg you know, labor, all of that. Two pushes, by the way, I'm like super excited about that. You know, and I and for me and my doula, my doula was in the room and she was like, yeah, you know, because she was my advocate throughout the whole thing, telling me, Danielle, you are healthy. You are healthy. This baby is healthy and we are not going to do. We're not thinking about anything else. And um, so shout out to Samsara Morgan. <laughs> <laughs> but but. I think it's that it's it's mm -hmm. it's the ways in which a person can be either demonstrating, you know, some problem. I don't even want to call it a problem, but just like demonstrating um, behaviors that are trying to communicate, right? Like mm -hmm. in the in the in the case of um, the clients that you were having, where they're it mystifies the doctors, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. They're larger, but they have anorexic, you know, behaviors, mm -hmm. right? There's that piece. Or then you have people who might be heavy and are just perfectly healthy. Fine. There's nothing wrong with them. But because of the structures that are created. Yeah. People become risk factors. So I think like you as a person were a risk factor. There was, it was boring otherwise, but because of everything that the doctor saw on paper and in person. They were like, mm. like we are worried because everything you have going on, you know, means that you're inherently a risk factor, mm -hmm. but it was boring. Yeah. Just the, just your body, the way that you show up, um, especially as black women, Yeah, we just are like, according to all of the, the science, 
mm-hmm. we are a health risk just by being yes. mm-hmm. our very being. And so yeah. to um, to push for um, an acknowledgement of our of our health, of our wellness um, in these larger spaces, which we have to be in, you know, um, because there's, there's very few alternatives. And especially if you, you know, um, are, um, have lower income and sort of are reliant on these structures and these systems for your well being, you have to go into these places. You have to be seen by these people. And so, you know, what are the ways that, you know, from your, from your, uh, perspective in your field what are the ways that people can I don't know just find and I I think this goes back to the question that that I was asking before you know how can how can people like find a sense of 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 joy but then also really have what is necessary for them Mm -hmm. Um, both individually and collectively, you know, individually, like one-on-one when we're having conversations with medical pro- professionals, but then also in the larger system, how can we affect those systems? Yeah. Can I answer the therapist one first? Because I've been trying really hard. Yeah. Okay, because this is therapy here. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm trying. Uh, so for <laughs> therapists, I always think of the tendency to join our clients, not our clients. I don't want to say yours because it feels rude. Mm-hmm. Uh, to join clients, we'll just say that, and their distress. And when that's about weight, right, to just easily like join in, you know, internalized fat phobia mm-hmm. and, you know, talk about their weight as a problem. So mm-hmm. if that's, you know, one thing that could be different is not joining a client and like reinforcing their own internalized fat phobia would be one. And recognizing, of course, the systems and structures that go along with those. So that's just a <laughs> therapist plug. Um, and then for those of us and who have to interact with uh, medical systems, I have with a dear friend, a black friend, also with a chronic illness. Um, a lot of our text thread is like, what happened to you at the doctor's appointment today? Um, how did it go getting your prescription? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. What nonsense did you have to put up with um, at, you know, so finding community, I have been, I have found to be essential on uh, disability community for me, like changed my life. Mm-hmm. Um, all of my internalized ableism, like overfloweth. <laughs> um, I have a seizure disorder, so I can't drive. Um, and so rely on my legs or someone to get anywhere and everywhere. Um, and so, you know, what would be a five minute errand, you know, either for me is, you know, Uber Lyft or like 20 minutes of bike ride. So having and asking, you know, was one of my primary, like needing help mm-hmm. <laughs> as a black woman and somebody with a chronic illness was like impossible. Like compounded. Yeah. Because like the whole oh. needing help yes. just generally yes. as a black woman. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah. and then having, um, to seat. ask to literally get help yes. like all the time. Yes. Yeah. Um, so having community of folks who, understand experiences um i talk about resilience and how it can literally kill us but like how can community build that resilience in another way so we become resilient we are not performing 
uh, resilience for white supremacy. So having that community there, um, there are some networks of folks um, who have, you know, names of doctors who are more um, fat friendly uh, providers and people who can advocate. Mm -hmm. um, but that's really hard to find, especially if you don't get to pick and choose who your provider is. Mm -hmm. um, Self-advocacy is one option. I struggle with that because that like puts the um, the responsibility on the individual, mm -hmm. which I don't love. Um, but when it comes to just, you know, medical, medical health, there are some resources, health at every size that have health sheets. So you can learn about, you know, your body and your health. When you go to the doctor, you can have, you know, these key terms, um, but one also I always recommend, especially for, you know, fat folks and trans patients is to have somebody else go with you who will make eye contact with the doctor when the doctor won't make eye contact with the patient or, you know, advocating for some having somebody who will advocate for you mm -hmm. or do the yelling into the phone that, mm -hmm. you know, people shouldn't have to do. Mm -hmm. So those are some. Yeah. Well, and it just sounds like um, really the antidote to everything, which is community. I know. <laughs> Having people. Yes. People. Um, and, you know, relationships and people who um, you, who are your people. Yeah. People who are your people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, this is something that I um, want to talk about because I think you get to it in like the um, latter, like third of the book is, which is really about like, well, what can we do? Mm -hmm. You know, so I feel like we're already um, entering into that territory, but um, centering blackness. That's what I really want to talk about. Sure. <laughs> centering blackness. And, and um, you talked about it a little bit um, um, in the book. I'm trying to remember what the context was, but I, I feel like it's just everywhere and in everything. Um, it's become a focal point for many black women, film activists, scholars. Um, we think about Trisha Hersey and the Nat Ministry, Black Women of God, uh, Black woman is God project in, um, here in the Bay Area. How can this type of perspective um, be incorporated into the discussion of health and wellness to engage more joy? Those are so many questions right there. Yeah. How can it be to engage more? <laughs> uh, oh, is that too? Um, I feel that every boardroom needs a Black woman laughing loudly. Um, hmm. That was <laughs> Uh, at least one, if not 10. Uh, so that would be centering blackness mm -hmm. and joy and black joy all at the same time. Um, and um, you, so centering, I think it's becoming, I'm hoping mm -hmm. it's becoming apparent how much is missing when white folks are talking about health and wellness. You know, I can think of one particularly that might be familiar here. There's a podcast that is maintenance phase, which has a lot of great facts. But it is very white um, and it's very of those white maintenance phase. Yeah. So it's like, you know, when you're thinking about recovery. <laughs> no, it, yeah. It's, that, and it gets it's, to like the maintenance it's phase. It's by a white fat activist and okay. a thin gay guy who thinks he knows all about fat people and okay. sometimes speaks for them, but it's fine. Um, it's actually not fine. But they, you know, 
talk about, you know, health fads and trends and like why, you know, this diet didn't work or why it's silly or this diet book. But it is, you know, saying that it's not intersectional is really simple. There's no complexity there. It is like what is on paper, like what was written. There's no like greater impact or societal impact or how this intersects. They talk about poverty some, but like really white supremacy and how this impacts people who are not white and privileged mm -hmm. is really missing. And so people walk away thinking they learned something, which they might have, but then consider that good enough. Like mm -hmm. I have learned about fatness. I have learned about how diets don't work and like checkbox, you know, mm -hmm. and then there's no like need to go and find more information is how I experience it. Um, and so having hiring, having black folks doing all of the talking would be great. Um, and there are folks who are black, especially in the eating disorder field, who play the game of whiteness very well and don't question what they've been told. And if we had more radical black folks who were unapologetic in our joy, you know, at these in these organizations, at these tables, I really feel like things would be so much better. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But black joy. Yeah. Yes. What's uh tell me about your pronouns. You want to talk about yeah, my pronouns? I do. Okay. Well, this is actually a good moment. I think um I don't know when it came to me. It just was like, yeah, this is it. <laughs> and I'm not going to do anything um certainly I think um I have been um really looking at joy as my, my resistance um, probably for about 10 years, like mm -hmm. before we got to like the whole Black Joy mm -hmm. parade and the thing that mm -hmm. happened a couple of weeks ago, shout out Black Joy Parade. Um, but it was really just about, um, I know what it was. I was encountering a lot of folks who um, were called, you know, who are activists. But I feel like the way that activism is sort of packaged, mm -hmm. there's a lot mm -hmm. of, um, of othering and canceling. And, um, you know, I believe in righteous anger, like I do. But it, it often wouldn't go anywhere because mm -hmm. It wasn't about collaboration or trying to, you know, see where things could go. And so I was just like, you know, there has to be a, a more effective way to do this. How can we engage like empathy and joy and hold people accountable? Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. And so that for me was it. I was like, because I'm in a space of being um, an activist, and I like to call myself um, a, a teacherist, maybe, just because it was sort of the same reason why you were um, sort of pushed to mm. um, write the book, which is why I was like, shout out, Shana. Is that correct? <laughs> yeah. Going back to you. Um, I, I feel like what we're talking about really is just this opportunity to um, be in front of more people, affect more people. Mm. And I did have one of my mentors say, 
you know, um, that she decided not to be a therapist, although I do love therapy and I'm a therapist and I, lo I, I love my work. Um, and so there's always gonna be that piece. But she was like, I, I, I can affect change more thoroughly if I'm teaching the subject. Mm. And I was like, you're right about that. So, so I definitely, I, it, it was one of the things that I really took in. And um, I just want to um, say her name, Denise Boston, who was our first um, Dean of, uh, of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion here at C. I, 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 she had the first office, at least. Mm -hmm. um, and so, she was basically like, you affect many more people if you can train the therapists. And um, so, yes. <laughs> Talking to more people than just one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you were saying joy and activism, and there's got to be a reason that people keep coming back. You know, sometimes that's con uh, connections, community. But, you know, when there is something that brings joy, like I want to show up for you. Um, if it's always just hard, like already existing is hard. But if we're going to do something that is joyful, like I also. And fun. Yeah. Like fun. I want to be there. I want to do that thing. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, I fully agree. And. Yeah, I feel like, you know, leaving the house every day is an act of rebellion. And sometimes I just want to have fun. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And in this book, I wanted it to be a fun read. Um, and it is. <laughs> right. It people is. are trying to say, you know, it's hard. It's fun when, in the early marketing. But I'm like, I don't I don't think it's hard. I, I think it's funny. I'm laughing at myself reading my own book. <laughs> Not even at the book. I'm laughing at myself at this. Yeah. In this book. Yeah. And I think what's also fun about it is um, just the storytelling aspect, just going back to that uh, a little bit, the storytelling aspect. I'm always riveted when I get a chance to hear people's stories and really like understand like what people's lives are like. Mm -hmm. um, and to, for me, I think one of the biggest um, aha moments and I think we talked about this in our call because I, I just was like I didn't know that people um, engaged in restriction mm. behaviors in order to fit in because I have never fit in anywhere like I can't because of my height I wear a size 12 shoe like there was just nothing mm -hmm. that was ever going to allow me to fit anywhere so I just didn't even ever think that I could do something about my body to to restrict it to in order to fit in. And I was like, oh my goodness, people are really, you know, um, this system oh, creates yeah. conditions mm -hmm. that make people desperate. Yes. To survive. To survive, thank you, to survive, to have, um, you know, careers, mm -hmm. to find success, to find friendship, to find love. Yeah. You talk about that in the mm -hmm. book a lot, like, you know, that people are restricting so that they can 
you know, look a particular way so that they can find them. So it's like this system is embedded into everything. And the more you like pull the string and unravel it, it's like, oh my God, I can't breathe. <laughs> <laughs> so reading some of the stories I would, I, I, or the narratives I would be reading and I'm like holding my breath and holding my body because I'm like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> yeah. You know? mm-hmm. I do. Uh, Lexi's story is one of them. And a really good example of, you know, so she didn't know she had an eating disorder until she had to meet me. <laughs> and it was not under clinical circumstances. It was because um, I was mentoring or supporting her. And but she just thought it was normal, like, you know, purging and cleanses and stuff like that. Like, that's just what she needed to do to win as a gymnast. It, yeah, it was the con- conforming. It wasn't like, I'm intentionally going to restrict in order to be thin. No, it was just like a tactic. Yeah. Yeah. And you hear about that in, um, you know, careers mm-hmm. that um, that really highlight what the body looks like, you know. Yeah. Um, but that, you know, again, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, it's in order to gain love from a parent or, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, in, within a family unit for sure getting attention or you know people always bring up you know when I go home to see my grandmother or I have to go home to see my parents you know the first thing they always comment on is my weight and then you know and then things spiral from there Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so families stop doing that (laughs) (laughs) stop doing that do not start the conversation with the an assessment of you know what someone looks like Mm -hmm. please don't save save your relationship (laughs) <laughs> yeah thanks everybody yeah. for coming out and witnessing um our conversation yeah. um really appreciate your presence your time your energy thank you jessica you're welcome <laughs> this was amazing i'm so glad i got to be in conversation yeah, yeah and in community because yes. that's where it happens in community yeah always in community thanks everybody have a good evening thank you for listening to the ciis public programs podcast our talks and conversations are presented live in san francisco california we recognize that our university's building in san francisco occupies traditional unceded ramaytush ohlone lands If you are interested in learning more about Native lands, languages, and territories, the website native-land.ca is a helpful resource for you to learn about and acknowledge the Indigenous land where you live. Podcast production is supervised by Kirsten Van Cleef at CIIS Public Programs. Audio production is supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. The CIIS Public Programs team also includes Izzy Angus, Kyle DiMedio, Alex Elliott, Emlyn Guinea, Patty Fort, and Nikki Rhoda. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe wherever you find podcasts, visit our website, CIIS.edu, and connect with us on social media at CIIS Pub Programs. CIIS Public Programs commits to use our in-person and online platforms to uplift the stories and teachings of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color, those in the LGBTQIA community, 
and all of those whose lives emerge from the intersections of multiple identities.